first episode of Nerd Culture Podcast. This will be our zero issue edition, our test run, if you will. It will be a collector's edition one day. Collector's edition, polybagged and boarded. <laughs> so my name is David, and with me today I have David. Hello. <laughs> uh, since there's two Davids, I'll be David W, and you can be David R. I was gonna go. I was gonna say David One and David Two, but I thought you might get offended. Yeah, well, really, I'm the more important David anyway. <laughs> okay, we'll just go with David W. David R. Okay. Uh, Luke. Hi. <laughs> you might remember me from such films as Two Minus Three Equals Negative Fun. <laughs> Here comes the metric system. And Crystal. Hello. Hello. Uh, normally at this point we'd go into the news, but uh, since this is our first, well, our zero issue, zero, uh, our pilot episode, if you will, um, I'd like to tell you a bit about us. Uh, we're four friends who uh, decided to join the wonderful world of podcasting. Um, I've previously podcasted on the Black Panel. That's blackpanel.com.au. That podcast is all about gaming. Um, I just decided that we wanted to do one based on pop culture, nerd culture, as, I, as we call it. Uh, movies, uh, stories, books, that sort of thing. Comics, the whole kit and caboodle. I myself will be uh, controlling this party. Bring the soul to this party. The control, the <laughs> and the vertical. And uh, my regular contributors will be the people who are with me today. Uh, we also have a website. It's www.nerdculturepodcast.com What was that again? www.nerdculturepodcast.com Thank you, my pod people. I and I immediately forgot the address. <laughs> <laughs> Which will be a oh, sort of a... listening at this point, are we? Okay, yep, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Which will be a companion to the podcast itself. Uh, which will have uh, news and reviews and maybe even a short story or two from Luke if he actually gets around to doing them. Um, so it'll be it'll have a standard sort of a standard format, but we will we will actually mix it up a bit. Um, our review system is a bit unique. Um, with us we have uh, Luke, the harshest critic in the world. So I've decided that uh, instead of I am Waldorf and Statler combined. Combined people, and that's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Instead of a rating out of ten or a rating out of five stars. We're actually going to rate our have our reviews as a rating out of five looks. Uh, so yeah, so each each podcast will have um will have at least three reviews uh, and split between those things. What do we feel like at the moment? Uh, the one constant will in fact be dust jacket. The dust jacket section will be led by De- uh, Richo, formerly known as David R. Uh, David, tell us a little bit about the the book extravaganza reading you've been doing. Tell us okay. One of the things that I noticed in my uh, nerd knowledge that was lacking was that I actually hadn't read many of the classic science fiction novels. Criminal. So, I know, that's a disgrace. It is a disgrace, actually. Hand in your nerd badge. But, in true nerd fashion, I jumped online, <laughs> went to a website and found a list of the top 100 science fiction novels of all time. Who voted for these people? Uh, that's an online poll, so anybody can vote for it. And so uh, each podcast, I will be reviewing one of the books on that list. Um, well, so can I, can I stop you there? Uh, Two hundred books. Yep. It's a monthly podcast. It's going to take us a while to get through them. That's true. Two hundred months. <laughs> Two hundred months. That's right. Long term planning, people. So how many years is that? What? Uh... I'm not a mathematician. Don't <laughs> ask me these crazy questions. You're the scientist here. You should tell us. <laughs> You're the one that likes space and stuff. Um, so since, since it's actually going to take quite a long time, are you going to do them in order? Like start from 200 and move up? Absolutely not. So in that case, can you tell us what the top five books were? Not yet. Not yet? <laughs> because what I'd like to do is actually, in each review that I do, I will actually be um, letting the listeners and the people here know where the book is on the list, 
And a big part of our discussion will actually be, well, does it deserve its position in the top Interesting, 200? interesting. I've just been informed by, uh, by uh, lovely Crystal that that is indeed 16 years. 16.666 years. Well, that's okay. We're in it for the long haul. <laughs> Where are the reviews coming from? What's the actual, like... Yeah, what is the website? What's the list? Okay, the website is called Sci-Fi Lists. Mm-hmm. I don't actually... Does it list the hottest women in sci-fi? You know, it may. I never actually <laughs> went that far. It did actually, if I remember, if I remember yeah, that. Yeah, it, it, actually, it actually covers movies, television, um, short stories, novels. It's, it's quite comprehensive, and anybody can go there and actually vote um, at Sci-Fi Lists. Um, the reason I chose that was it was the first thing that came up when I looked at Google. Good old Google search. <laughs> Google search tells me everything I need. You to didn't know. type Google into Google, did you? No, I didn't. Because that breaks the that internet. breaks the internet. <laughs> um, there will also be um, actual <laughs> uh, written uh, reviews as well. Will be on our website, which is nerdculturepodcast.com. What was that again? Nerdculturepodcast.com. We also have a Twitter account. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but uh, nerdculturecast. Check it out. All right, so. Dave, now you've given us that excellent introduction, thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, we'll head on to Dust Jacket. Okay, well, today we will be looking at Isaac Asimov's Foundation. An excellent choice, David. Thank you. Well, Foundation is lauded as one of the greatest science fiction novels of all time. Um, it's highly praised by writers and fans alike as one of the absolute masterpieces of the genre. What's it rated on SciFiList.com? It's actually number three. Oh! I thought, yeah, I thought we'd start with something ranked fairly highly because, you know, it's just, I think it's a good good place to start. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, but um, look, so highly praised is this uh, series that it was actually awarded the best all-time series uh, by the Hugo Awards in 1965. It's the only time that that award has been uh, divvied out, and it beat things like uh, Lord Lensman. of the Rings. And Lensman. Yeah, so... Uh, it deserved to beat Lord of the Rings. Hugo and, and I'm going to agree with Hugo because the Hugo is a science fiction award, not a fantasy award. So I will say, yes, Foundation is the best science fiction series because Lord of the Rings is fantasy. Ah, but it didn't say best science fiction series. Oh, it said best all-time all, all time series. series. All right, so, so... Back to Foundation. Back to Foundation. So Foundation opens in the final days of a vast galactic empire that is collapsing after about 10 millennia. Do they have giant the spaceships? They like have the size spaceships. of planets? They have actually, space has been fully colonised uh, for so long that really Earth has been all but forgotten mm. by the, the by planet, the Empire. The sort of planet that. itself is kind of a giant spaceship. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So the Empire is collapsing and uh, the inevitability of the collapse has actually been predicted by Harry Seldon, who is the first character that we're introduced to in Foundation. Uh, Seldon has developed the science of psychohistory which is a system Ooh. that mathematically predicts the behavior of large populations over vast periods of time. Psychohistory is it's a very interesting and detailed concept in the book, and we're given just enough of what it is to actually to carry the story, but without being bogged down in the science of it, um, which I think is actually a, a strength of the book, because it's very easy, I think, in science fiction novels to actually get you know, bogged down in hard science. But Asimov, I think, avoids that, you know, quite deftly and just gives us just enough to, to carry the story and the characters through. Um, but yeah, Seldon has predicted that not, not only will the Empire collapse, but that a period of 30,000 years of barbarism will uh, follow this collapse. Is um, the Empire like a nice empire or is it more like the Darth Vader-ish type empire? It's a bit of both. 
It's it's mm. kind of um, a little bit decadent. Mm. Um, it's it's clearly like a Logan's modeled. Run type episode. Well, it's, it's clearly no. modeled. That's on the those. sexiest movie in the world. <laughs> yes, it's all about Teddy Agutter and short skirts <laughs> for you, isn't it? <laughs> yes, no. The Empire is um, it's it's clearly based on uh, really the final days of the Roman Empire. Uh, internal strife, internal decadence um, is leading to. An eventual collapse um the empire actually refuses to acknowledge that and they actually do end up banishing seldon uh for his his beliefs and for his advice. and because he's he's got the style and because he's they got were the jealous style. they were jealous the twists he's got the moves exactly right yeah so seldon has determined yes that there will be a thirty thousand year period of barbarism following the collapse of the empire um he does determine though that with the proper preparation this period could be reduced to a mere thousand years. So he is exiled uh, to the far corner of the galaxy, which, as it turns out, is what he wanted and what he actually set everything up for. Because Ooh, on the... He's like Batman in space. He's very... He's, his long-term plan is impressive, mm. to say the least. Yes, he's got exactly the mathematics right. to... Well, to yeah, well, really, that. really that, that's all... That, that's really what he's about. He's about long-term planning and a long-term understanding of the history of extremely long term. extremely long-term planning of the history of uh of human culture and society so on the edge of the galaxy he begins laying the uh, groundwork for his thousand year plan which starts as a cataloging of all human knowledge and Selden himself records a series of messages and warnings about key threats and key moments and key turning points in the history um, that will, humanity will actually have to face um, if his plan is to work. And it's these recordings that really lay the foundation, <coughs> no pun intended, uh, the foundation for the rest of the story because um, we're then taken on a several hundred year journey through the history of mankind, uh, through the subsequent books. Um, Does the, uh, the 2001 music stories. play in the background while you're doing it? When I'm reading science fiction, the 2001 music is always playing. Oh, right. At least in my mind. Either that or Pink Floyd. Absolutely. <laughs> Both good choices. And oh, Flash by Queen. Uh, <laughs> Flash, Flash by Queen is, is only good for a very specific situation, and that's Flash. <clears throat> He'll save every one of us. <laughs> He's just a man. With a man's courage. <laughs> so the rest of the series consists of um, effectively a series of short stories. All linked by the world that Asimov has created and Selden's plan um, and the messages that uh, Selden is delivering. Like any uh, series of, of short stories, the quality of each story varies. Um, some are better than others. There's really no story in Foundation that I would say is, is bad or poorly written or doesn't have interesting characterization. So it is. A, so just uh, to clarify for people who may not have read Foundation, I mean, because we all, of course, all have. But so it is actually a selection of short stories. I, I wouldn't say it's a collection of short stories as such. I robot is a collection of short stories with a with a with a thread and a link. What this is is this is an actual story in and of itself. Well, I mean, there are there are leaps that occur, um, often you know, decades uh, long leaps between each story, mm. um, and each story introduces you to new characters. And yes, there is that. You're right. There is a forward progression, in that each each story is still telling the story of the foundation, and of this thousand years period of barbarism, and how that is slowly developing along Seldon's plan 
to the eventual emergence of the new Galactic Empire, which unfortunately Asimov never actually got to. The Foundation books only cover, I think, roughly about 500 years or so of the Thousand Year Plan, so unfortunately it's a series that really doesn't actually give you its eventual payoff. So does Saturn like, live throughout the entire story? I'm playing, I'm playing devil's advocate here, and I'm, I'm being the audience, and who may not know the story as well as we do. So, so Seldon, does he survive throughout the entire thing? No, Seldon wanna... is actually uh, really, Seldon, as a living being, actually only appears in about the first 40 to 50 pages of the first Foundation novel. Right. Um, there, are two, there are two prequel novels, Prelude to Foundation, Forward to Foundation, which concentrate on Harry Seldon's life and the development of, of psychohistory, but in terms of Foundation proper. Um, it's about the first 46 pages, at least in yeah. my edition. Yeah. Um, and after that, he becomes a recorded message. Um, at Very cool. moments in history, they will actually go into a chamber and, and listen to Selden's messages about, uh, about these key moments in history and what they mean and, and how they can sort of deal with them. Um, and that, that becomes sort of a unifying thread, the Selden plan, uh, through all of the stories. Um, in the second half of Foundation and Empire, though, um, Asimov introduces what I consider to be one of the most incredible villains I've ever read in a book. Um, a character called the Mule, um, a mutant who is actually not predicted by Selden, and so therefore poses a real and genuine threat to the plan because he's something outside of the plan that, that, that Selden could never have predicted. And this is the first point where you get a real sense of impending you know, menace or a, a real sense that there is something here that could actually completely derail everything that Selden has worked for. Um, and the mule in and of himself is a, just a fantastic villain. So. The mule is very three-dimensional. You, you, you simultaneously feel sorry and empathy for him while also wishing ill because you want him to you know, not be evil. Absolutely agree. There's I cheat him on every second of the way, but that's just I guess that's just me. Maybe you always go for the bad guys. <laughs> and the bad guys are more interesting. To be to be fair, actually, the New Mutants, all right, the second book, Foundation and Empire, is sort of just really continue doing what doesn't isn't doing anything that the first, that the first Foundation book is doing, isn't doing. And it's really when it, once the mule comes into it, it's kind of like you know the whole thing tends to blow up and be, and Foundation and Empire gets better. Well, the, the whole series, I think, as, as you say, he's a wonderfully fully developed character that you, simultaneously, you feel incredible empathy, but at the same time, you understand that he is such a um, devastating threat to Selden's plan. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's brilliantly written in that way, so that you're, you're conflicting emotions here. And this, I think this is when the series really, really takes off and sort of is elevated to a new level. Mm. Because the, the situation with the mule and the storyline with the mule then leads to the revelation that there is a second foundation. It was actually a little confusing for me as well because I bought the first three books and read Foundation and then moved straight on to second foundation thinking it was the yes, second book. Yes, it, was, it wasn't um, the best choice for a title, was no. it? No. <laughs> yeah, as I said, the, the only real shame with reading Foundation is that, is that it doesn't, there is no actual conclusion. You don't see the birth of of uh, the new Galactic Empire. But having said that, it was an, an amazing series to read. I was, I was, I found myself moving through each book very quickly with a, 
true desire to read the next book in the series. Um, cool. And I think, therefore, it's actually well-deserving of its spot in the top five greatest science fiction novels of all time. It should be in the top spot. Well, Chris, we know, I know you're a big fan, so what's your thoughts on Fair Legend? Fair Legend? Um, I found it actually a struggle to get through the first book. But very glad I did get through the first book because, as, as Richard says, it just once you sort of, the meal comes into it, it really opens up the story and brings it. I actually prefer the later books, the ones written in the 80s. Mm. The Convergent Foundation and Earth. Yeah, well, I, uh, Asimov clearly is uh, evolved as a writer. That's true. There's a, the, he becomes a more accomplished writer mm. and, yes. and that's quite prevalent in the later books. Yeah. I just wish that he'd written about six more to get us right through to the end. Yeah, that would have been good. Too. And I, I also like the way he crosses over in some stories, like to the Elijah Bailey novels, will will you'll find characters pop up, or at least one character pop up in Foundation without trying to spoil it. Um, but the other thing about that, the funny thing about that was that that wasn't intentional. Only when sort of towards the end of his life, yeah, um, started to write more novels, particularly the first two, the prelude before the yeah. Foundation, which he was trying to tie them all together so they form. So he's saying he basically got it, he got confused and put... No, I'm saying he got confused. I'm saying, I'm saying that what he, what he... was that they were actually separate separate entities and then, you know, before he... you know, in the years before yeah. he died he actually made attempts to turn them into um, one... He could look back over his body of work and see a clear connection, I think, mm, yeah. and, and he connected it. I really like stuff that ties in like that. Mm. Fine little... Most people, that, there's quite a few people like you don't like that, but I, I, I personally don't have a problem with I it. Shared world shared, yeah, shared world continuity. I think it's, I'm a big fan. Science fiction before this, before Foundation, um, for, the, for the most part was dominated by things like, you know, your Victorian-era science fantasies by H.G. Wells and um, Jules Verne, your E. e. Doc Smith style um, big galactic space adventure, which ha- um, Edmund Hamilton, whilst he wrote actually a lot better than E. e. Doc Smith did, um, was sort of writing the same thing Captain Future, Big Adventures Through Space, Bowler's Brass, and your A.E. Van Vogt, L. Ron Hubbard, you know, Psionic Superman um, type stories, which, you know, we have these weird, wonderful powers. But at no point before that was there really a coherent vision. For or certainly as expansive a vision as Asimov's, of like in my opinion, and he's he's the, he's the first one that really shows you know science fiction as a coherent you know we're not just you know silly monsters and bug-eyed creatures yeah. zapping each other through space. There's very there's, little aliens in Asimov's work. There is absolutely, and from memory, there are no aliens as in obvious aliens. We are alien. In the, it's alien yeah. in the sense of you know they we are humans who colonized space, yeah. but there are no you know monsters or creatures. That they fight as such. Well, the, I'm pretty sure there are no aliens in Foundation. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm, uh, that's say. what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, which is kind of weird, though, don't you think? Well, I not mean, they, really, because what they go really through the universe and there's not a single life form that they encounter. So does Serenity. So does Red Dwarf. Yeah, I, I mean, well, using them as arguments is not really valid. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that they're even any less silly. I'm just, it's just, it just seems kind of strange to me that people that travelled that far into the universe and don't encounter any life forms at all, especially from a scientist. Man, well, I was a scientist the, as well as a writer. I think the important thing to sort of note with Foundation that is essentially what Asimov is doing is giving us um, the history of the world hmm. from the fall of the Roman Empire through the thousand years 
after that. So he's really the uh, one of the amazing things about Foundation is that he's using the science fiction genre mm. to illustrate to the readers and to show the cycles of history that humanity goes through. I mean, you can look at what happens with the collapse of the Galactic Empire and um, through the birth of um, you know the Merchant Barons and so on, and you can compare that to you know actual especially European history and see that, that there are cycles of history and in, in doing that and in giving us a better understanding of the history of humanity and the nature of humanity through history I think Asimov elevated science fiction to uh, a higher cultural level to um, as you say to get beyond the you know two-fisted action and bug-eyed monsters of, of guys like Smith to an actual deeper, more philosophical approach to science fiction. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. drama in space. Exactly. And, and to get back to your earlier point about the Millennials, I, I can't remember exactly because it's been a long time since I read them, but I'm, I think in the later novels he actually does touch on that. There's a, like a little subplot there about that. About them not being, they've, co- they've covered the galaxy, but there's no mm. alien life forms. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. They would be like a Star out. Trek theory, like where they all came from. For the preservers. For, for the preservers. I think the Man. other important thing to notice about Foundation 2 is the sheer number of uh, um, science fiction writers that followed from Asimov who were actually inspired by Foundation to become science fiction writers. Definitely. Um, so it's, it's, it's impossible, I think, to downplay the impact that this book has had on the genre. Um, mm. And, uh, yeah, we, we wouldn't have many of the great later science fiction books without Asimov inspiring so many creators to actually uh, to, to take up the genre and to try and make it something more than it was. Totally agree. So on that note, our uh, Luke ratings. We'll start with Luke. Four. Four Lukes? Four Lukes. Excellent. It is a, it is a pretty... It's not, my, it's not my favourite science fiction novel of all time, but, you know, it is seminal. Excellent. Crystal? Five. Not because it's seminal, just because I really like it. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, I've definitely got to give it uh, as a series uh, five looks as well for basically both reasons it's an amazing book to read but it is also absolutely seminal science fiction and uh, just a book having such a massive impact on science fiction as a whole I think it it deserves its five looks excellent I'll go with four four looks out of five and uh, an excellent choice for your first edition can I I ask why you didn't give it the fifth look there's no aliens <laughs> no, I'll, just, I'll take you up on that one. Actually, yeah, I just think five loops would be a pretty rare situation, in my opinion. Mm. Is uh, we'll touch on that mm. in a later episode. I think that uh, five for me is the pinnacle, and I just don't think it's the pinnacle. Mm. I mean, it's very good, very, very good. Mm. Excellent, thank you very much, Richo. No problem. Very entertaining segment. Okay, let's move on to Popcorn Junkie. So for our first Popcorn Junkie, we're actually going to do Thor, the NCP crew. That's nerdculturepodcast.com uh, nerd culture, nerd culture podcast dot com. That's say ten times really, really fast. No, 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 yes, I can't even Shut the hell up, Luke. <laughs> dot com. Um, and uh, we'd like to talk about it. Without further ado, uh, popcorn junkie Thor. Uh, Thor, the latest release from the Marvel Studios bandwagon of films, uh, with their part of their shared universe. Of course, uh, leading to the Avengers. We previously had Iron Man, and now we're going on with Thor. There wasn't anything else, was there? Hulk. Oh, and Hulk. 
but you don't really count that. And technically Iron Man 2. Yes, I suppose, and Iron Man 2. Oh, jeez, I've totally ruled this one up. Um, I mean, you don't count Hulk. Tony Stark shows up in Hulk. That's, that's true. That's true. Um, and so directed by Kenneth Branagh, uh, not normally a superhero director. An interesting choice at first, a bit weird, but uh, we've seen the end results and I can say it was a good choice. So we'll start off with uh, Richard. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Hit us off. Film had all of the uh, really characteristics you'd expect from a big blockbuster. Lots of action, lots of big ad- adventure, um, lots of special effects. Um, but there was a little bit more to it, I think, than your standard blockbuster. There was uh, more story, a little bit more of an attempt at characterization, um, and some really fantastic performances. Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Australia's own Chris Hemsworth. Home and away's own Chris Hemsworth. Yet another home and away actor. Making it big. I know, it's excellent. Um, and he does a really good job here. Um, he captures just the right level of uh, um, heroism combined with uh, the right level of arrogance, uh, especially early on in the film. And uh, Anthony Hopkins as Odin, I think, is is brilliant. He is uh, just that right level the man of commanding act. presence yeah. that uh, an all-father god should have. Um so I think the casting was excellent. Natalie Portman was good. Uh, she's certainly now, she's always good. Well, she certainly now endeared herself to nerd culture by appearing in Star Wars and V for Vendetta. I think she already did that when she was in Leon. True, but um, they should do a sequel to Leon with Matilda. They should call it Matilda, the professional know, two. No, they shouldn't. <laughs> we'll talk about that later <laughs> in the war room. Um, and um, the, he managed, um, Kenneth Branagh as a director manages to find, I think, a, a really good balance between Asgard and Earth, um, alternating between the two, um, which I think is the strength of Thor as a character anyway. You, you can't base all the stories in Asgard or all the stories on Earth because you, know, you, you want a nice mix of, yeah. of both. I remember you mentioned uh, you had a really good point about the differences between Earth and uh, Asgard. Why don't you fill us in on that? Well, one of the, one of the really amazing things, and the um, full credit to Kenneth Branagh as a director, is that he directs the Earth scenes and the Asgardian scenes very differently. Um, the Earth scenes are fairly sort of fairly standard blockbuster directing, um, lots of quick cuts, uh, you know, moving camera, but nothing too over the top. Whereas the scenes... Uh, no Bourne Ultimatum type style. No, no crazy Bourne Ultimatum style. You can actually tell what was going on. Exactly. Um, whereas the Asgardian scenes are shot in really his his Hamlet way of shooting. Big, sweeping, um, <laughs> vista, epic shots of... Yeah. You know, Interesting angles. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that really Very helps nasty. to uh, distinguish between the two realities and, and add something extra to the sort of grandness that Asgard uh, should have and I think he captures that very well. Crystal? Um, well I agree with what, the, what Richard said but uh, you, know, you guys all come from a, a media background and see a lot more in it than what I can. I come from a visual arts background so from that point of view I think it's very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I like most about it is it, it, it had a good story and that's what I look for most in the film. A good story and something that entertains me, unlike Sausage Ranch, which we shall not speak of. <laughs> Come on, it wasn't that bad, jeez. Um, it just, it kept me entertained the whole way through. I do have a couple of picky points with it, but 
Is it everyone has picky points or is there is there Hey, what were those picky points? <laughs> what were your picky points, Crystal? <laughs> one point would be um, when Thor tries to retrieve his hammer. As he gets closer and closer to the hammer, the, the scene slows down, which I found quite annoying because we knew from what Odin had said earlier that he wouldn't be able to pick up the hammer. So Yeah, but he didn't know that. He didn't know that, but we knew he wouldn't be able to. So slowing it down, slowing down the in- in- inevitable, I found quite annoying. And then we find But it builds up the drama, you see. No, no, I found I it think it more importantly, it just telegraphs what we already know is yeah. going to happen. So. Yeah. Um, so we knew, because uh, it slowed down, we knew some sort of action was going to happen. And there was this pointless fight scene. Which I, I mean, With the big guy. You guys might have enjoyed that, but I found the, that scene pointless. And then when he finally did get to the hammer, slow motion, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> no. um, oh, the, other, the other point I thought of was Thor had spent his whole life growing up under his father's tu- tuition. You know, his father was teaching his whole life. And he's still come out to be this arrogant little so-and-so. And it takes... It <laughs> to takes be, well, to be fair, that, that is basically what Thor's meant to be about. That, that and, is what Thor's meant to be about. But just He was a prince. Just just from an outsider's point of view, it takes him uh, a few days with a lovely lady to completely change. <laughs> yeah, but a few, a few days with uh, uh, Natalie Portman, <laughs> that will change a man. It was done well. It was done well, and the story still flowed pretty well. I only thought of that this morning. But that is a good point. It is. It does doesn't um, really take all that much. But, but to be know, fair, they've only got you know an hour and a half, two hours to get it all done. Yeah, but yeah, that's right. And and I still enjoyed the movie. Um, so, so really, what you're saying is, is Odin's parenting is what's at fault. Here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's a bad parent. <laughs> but when you've only got one eye. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to get one eye on your kingdom and one eye on your son when you've only got, got one two, eye. He's got two, oh, Bazing! <laughs> he's got two sons, right? So one's always in view, but the other one... <laughs> he's always in the shadows. It was easy to sneak, it was easy to sneak around him and, and, and put things by him because he just moved into his blind spot. Yes, we don't talk about Loki. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Loki. Well, um, so well, Loki was probably my biggest negative in the film. I just didn't feel that... Well, first of all, I didn't feel the actor's performance, uh, Tom Huddleston's performance, was really all that convincing. I um, thought you were fine, Tom. There was there wasn't that sense <laughs> of Tom's be there wasn't a sense of, of, of <laughs> he better be listening or uh, about Loki. There was nothing. There was no slyness really about his performance. Nothing in it that made me no glint of something uh, of anything evil. It was just very much by the numbers. I liked that coming from. I haven't read the comics. I do know a bit about Norse mythology, but not having read the comics I liked that because you, his character was then slowly revealed to be the the evil character rather than straight away you didn't know straight away who I agree would be. have actually have actually read Thor um but it's, it, it I actually thought he could nice do quite well to have to see at least hints of that in the performance itself um yeah I, I think it was he, he was just kind of standing around and looking very you know somber most of the time and and they really, they, I didn't feel there was anything to his, any real depth to his performance mm-hmm. in, as a as, as a villain. Um, and really, and that then lends itself to the, his motivation for what he does, um, I actually found was a little bit weak as well. Yeah, as, as far as villains go, the, the his, his reasons for seizing power and for, you know, exile, yeah, uh, uh, sort of setting things up so that his brother is exiled and actually comes across as quite lame and almost emo. Uh, by the end of the film, it's like, well, Loki I wanted, the emo god. All I wanted was a bit of love. 
<laughs> he can team up with emo Peter Parker for Spider-Man Three. Exactly. Excellent. So, Luke, harshest critic in the world. Your opinion? Um, I agree with Richo. Um, I think there are some there are some good performances. Chris Hemsworth is particularly good. Uh, he gets his nobility, but he looks like he's having a lot of fun. I mean, there's that one. There's one shot where he's breaking into the um into the shield base where they have Mjolnir. Um, and there's lightning crackling along the sky and he's about to run and he just looks up at the sky and he smiles and it reminds me of a moment of um, the end of Superman where you know Christopher is flying out through the um, out in the of Earth's atmosphere and he just gives that nice little gentle smile to the audience it reminded me of that it looked like it reminded me of someone really enjoying what they were doing yeah that was um, whether, that, whether that was the case you know, it, it was raining the actor could have been Chris Evans could have been having a bad day and you know Kenneth Branagh could have been on this case if that's the case more power to him because he looked really good yeah um he did look really good. But yeah, he, you're right. He does just yeah. look like he is, he is having fun. Mm. And, he, and, yeah. and just like he, he was born for this role. Like this yeah. is yeah. what he wants to be doing. You know? Yeah. Um, and I thought, I thought he, he, he was Thor. Yeah. Um, very good. Very good casting choice, Kenneth. We, I agree, we agree. I agree. I agree about Odin. I think Hopkins is great. Um, points to Idris Elba, who I thought did a fantastic job as Heimdall. Excellent. Exactly Excellent job. Exactly what he need, what Heimdall needs to be. Yeah. Um, you know, Heimdall from both the comic and the mythology is the keeper of is, is the watcher on the gate making sure that no one can get into Asgard or get out of Asgard without his knowing so it's got to be you know pretty dominant pretty menacing and you know for the limited times screen time that um, Idris Elba that Heimdall's got Idris Elba dominated those scenes he had more screen time than Loki more, he, he was more <laughs> menacing than Loki he was, he was very I, very good and I thought yeah Really well, really well cast. Yeah, um, when you when you the moment you first see him, he's like, "This guy is." He's, he look, yeah, he looks like he could mess you up if you tried to sneak into his garden yeah. without even knowing. Mm. And Natalie Portman as well, given that she's cast in the role that is generally seen to be a bit typical and a bit generic and not really forgiving to you know the actresses that get these types of roles. She's cast as you know the love interest. She did really well in the sixties. Was more you know this is the role of the female going giving her an actual understanding that the character has. And in the comics, the character has intelligence and giving her a job and a career more a, a useful to the plot. I like how you try to skirt around the fact that when we previously discussed this, you yeah, I was, uh, it was just I, I was I was she was just a nurse. It's better that she was just a nurse. No offense to all the nurses in the audience, but the the, the, the context of the sixties that. <laughs> I know, I'm just making it works, but it was in the 60s, you can't, but you she can't. was the swooning love interest. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I like. She wasn't just the swooning love interest in this. She actually had a purpose and a function and a character, um, irrespective of Thor himself, if that makes sense. Um, Kenneth Brenner does, as we said, Kenneth Brenner, he does a very good job of directing. I agree about Loki. I agree with Richard about Loki. I think Loki's very weak. Given that in both mythology and um, the comics he is malevolent mischievous sneaky cunning I really wanted to see a lot more of that and to have him gain power without really doing anything but there's a little yeah. bit of manipulation there's a little right? bit of manipulation to get the power that he gets he gets it far too easily I think yeah see I disagree I, mean, I actually think Loki as a character even in the comics is pretty weak I mean he's, Loki, he's no Magneto but Loki I mean is, yeah, he just um, he just does what he does because he has the power to start with um, I had big story issues with um, I would have liked um, to keep the Asgard and mythology stuff uh, as in the, you know, Asgard and the gods element more of a mystery and revealed that um, a lot later in the film than they did. I yeah, thought, I totally I, agree. I thought revealing it up front was a mistake. I thought what um, 
it doesn't draw it doesn't draw the audience in. Yeah. Should have had a bit more fish out of water sort of a stuff. A bit more fish out of the water, and you could have actually done a nice thing with the with the relationship between Jane Foster and Thor. Yeah. Um, and just sort of getting more more of her perspective into the. She does uh, fall in love with him quite easily. I mean, he's a smoky man. He's pretty. He's very pretty. And but, she, uh, she doesn't really. She's not really in love with him, and she's attracted to him pretty much right from the outset. And as you say, he's a, he's a <laughs> handsome man, and as they point out in the film, he is cut. Um, <laughs> but it's not until later on when she sees the self-sacrificing hero aspect of him that she truly falls in love with him. Um, and I actually think that was built up quite nicely in the film. It was. Um, it, it, it didn't seem forced to me. Um, it didn't seem like just slapped on to make sure that we've got the love interest bit going, you know, as, as a lot of other films have. But I actually I found it developed actually quite nicely from... And look, it, look it's fine, um, but it I would have liked more of them up front and being drawn into um, Asgard and the gods and the mythology instead of just having it all dumped on me the way that... And that's what I felt, kind of like it's all just being... I'm well, just being I mean, told stuff. Like, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, not being allowed to experience it for myself. As you a, mean like the narration? Yeah, the narration. <laughs> I disagree. I think the... the well, it's harshest the, critic. I think the narration, the narration at the start sets up the history of Asgard and the relationship with the Frost Giants, which is really the background for the story. It's not the actual story itself. Hmm. So setting that up as narration at the start... Um, I actually think works perfectly well, and then it takes you then straight into the story of Thor. I disagree in, completely. In a way that, <laughs> I disagree well, it's completely. Standard, it's a standard of. Um, it is a standard of those sort of things, yeah. Of fantasy yeah. filmmaking. I mean, look at the ten minute narrative at the start of Lord of the Rings that yeah. sets up all of the I backstory. Agree. That's, it but sets also, a tone. It sets I, I think, a tone this, I think this does but the same. Lord, yeah. But in Lord of the Rings, in Lord of the Rings, what that does is it sets not only just sets up the tone and then the history <laughs> and what Middle Earth is. It sets up. The, the nature of the conflict it sets up the villain and they're two very strong through lines whereas the narration in this just sets up that there's a problem with the frost giants and then the it's frost giants are sort of left by the wayside anyway look I disagree entirely it sets up <laughs> it sets up the entire history of the frost giants and the Asgard and the nine worlds and the nine worlds and establishes what becomes a key element of the story mm. which is well, what I would call the casket of ancient winters, which is what they call it. It's in the basically novel. what it is, yeah. But basically, it explains how that device gets to Asgard in the first place, which sets up the basically the entire the entire storyline. All right, all right. I think, we, I think we pretty much run the, the narration at the start to death. A couple of things for me, I thought were awesome was uh, the destroyer himself, which uh, just looked mad, mm-hmm. just looked really, really mad when he reactivated his powers. And as you can see, I'm sure you've all seen it on the trailer, which you can see on nerdculturepodcast.com. Uh, just the way he just lights up from within. Awesome, awesome stuff. Um, and uh, overall, just it was just highly enjoyable. Just, I was just, I was having a lot of fun. I had as much fun watching that as I did Iron Man 1, and yeah. for various reasons. So it's good stuff. Can I just say, too, I like the Agent Coulson character. I liked him in Iron Man. Yeah, Agent Coulson is awesome. Mm. Well, I think you bring up a good point there about the Destroyer, and, and actually the special effects in general. Yeah. I actually thought were very good in this film, yeah. and but they're never... They never overwhelm the story. Yeah, they they, they serve the yeah. story really well. Uh-huh. Um, yep, I agree. Which is what special effects should do. Special mm. effects should be there to, to enhance the story and enhance the viewing yeah. pleasure rather than hiding the fact that there is no story. Mm. Um, and I think this works... <laughs> Yet another blatant sucker punch. Just like sucker punch. <laughs> like sucker punch. Um, 
But yeah, and, and yeah, I think, as you say, the Destroyer looks fantastic, but yeah. it, it's also the, the presence of the Destroyer. That's right. Actually progresses the story really nicely, and so... It's, it's not just a punch-on, just yeah. to have Thor look tough. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, there is a plot point. There is actually a yeah. point to it, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so full point for the special effects. And I think there's, everybody had a good... I mean, everybody had a role. I mean, even the minor human roles... Um, were, were interesting. Stellan yeah, it was it was good to see Stellan Skarsgård in, in this film. Yeah, actually. it was good. Um, it would have been interesting if uh, Stellan Skarsgård's son had been casted as Thor, because he looks very <laughs> Thor-like. I don't know if you're True Blood watches. Yeah, but uh, he he, does look he very looked Thor-like. very Thor-like. That would have been a very Which interesting. One is he in True Blood? He's Eric. Blonde, uh, long yeah. blonde, curly yeah. haired guy. He's also cut. He's he's a very handsome man. Uh, <laughs> I just like to point out that my fiance is sitting right next to you. I'm allowed to say these things. <laughs> Um, no, he's not. Yeah, so yes, yeah, so all the and so every, I mean everybody had a part. I mean the Warriors three and Sif, you know, they were all quite good as well. I mean, yeah, you know, comedic value and um, uh, but also you know important roles. And uh, Rene Russo. Rene Russo as as, as Frigga, yep, excellent. Um, also, I just point out just the the comedy I thought was uh, quite good. It's just uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't over the top. I mean, there was a, there was a couple of really key comedic moments at the start there. Luke's favorite line. You know, involving Thor. I like this drink. I should point out that I also like that line because I'm a big coffee addict myself, so <laughs> it's nice to have my, you know, my values, my beliefs validated on, you know. That's right. Stuff. If Thor agrees, then you know it must be right. Um, but yeah, just some, just some, some key commitment, which didn't don't go over the top. It wasn't uh, blatant in your face. It was it was more like, again, more sort of Iron Man level. It was just, you know, there was... They found a nice uh, balance between... It was a really nice balance, I the, thought. The comedy and, and the more serious... And then once the story progressed, the comedy kind of stopped and we got into the action so I thought that was just really well done I, just, I think uh, Kerry Brown did a really an excellent job and uh, a great uh, lead into the Avengers as uh, a Marvel Studios film of course it had a little bit at the end there after the credits which we waited for uh, without giving too much away what do you guys think in sort of in terms of the previous end credit sequences we had in Iron Man 1 and 2 and I believe there was one at the end of Hulk the, re- the reboot uh, Hulk I yes, was, I believe yeah. there was. Um, how would you sort of rate that? Well, the, these sort of post-credit little snippets have actually, I think, become one of the real highlights of the Marvel film. And I know I, I certainly was sitting there in anticipation, waiting for the ten-minute credit sequence to end. Um, the, I, I think Foo Fighters, yeah, yeah, Foo Fighters. <laughs> yeah, sitting through Foo Fighters to get to the end credit, uh, the end little snippet there is, is not that bad. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, it's, I've, I've really sort of loved all of the little sort of post-credit snippets that they've done now. And this one, yeah, it was unexpected. They didn't take... I mean, we were, we were trying yeah. to guess yeah, what was coming. While the credits were rolling, we were like, oh, they should do this bit. They should, yeah. they should do a cap and shield, maybe, or even cap himself, yeah. and all sorts of random stuff. And, and they managed to avoid going with the obvious ones and, and really mm. gave us something that was quite surprising and quite interesting yeah. and, and that set things up nicely for the Avengers. So stick around after the credits. I'm sure we don't need to tell you that, but yeah. Very cool. Sets up the Avengers. I think that's pretty much it. Final ratings. Luke. How many Lukes? I'd give it about two. Two Lukes. Two Lukes. Mm. Interesting. A controversial choice. I'm going to give Richard? it three and a half Lukes. I'm cutting my Luke in half just for... Three and a half Lukes? Three and a half Lukes. Very entertaining. Crystal? I agree. Three and a half Lukes. Three and a half Lukes? Two. <laughs> Luke well, has the Luke has the final word. <laughs> the world's harshest critic has spoken. <laughs> Two looks. Excellent, thank you. Right, let's move on to from the racks. From the racks is where each contributor will pick a comic mm-hmm. and review that. It doesn't have to be a current one. 
could be any comic from any part of comic history, it can even be storylines. Uh, Crystal will not be choosing a comic as yet, uh, but part of this segment, segment will be to convince you, our audience, as well as Crystal herself in the wonderful world of comics. Let's have, start off with Luke. Okay, I've um, chosen. I have chosen a recent one. I've chosen uh, Hell, the Hellboy. Um, Buster Oakley gets his wish. So that's made by. It's um, Dark Horse. It's written by Mike Mignola and Mike Nolan. Um, it's sort of one of the one of Mignola's little done in one Hellboy stories, which is why I've chosen it because it's something you really don't see very much of in comics anymore. That's not plastered with one shot special edition. Will be worth you know five bucks, even though we want you to think it's worth a hundred bucks. Um, type deals. Um, mm -hmm. It's Hellboy. Um, Hellboy. An excellent choice. I am a big fan of Hellboy. Hellboy is possibly out of um, you know franchises from the big two. It's probably the one franchise that comic book franchise that people will know. Um, it does have. It seems to appeal to a very wide um, um, fan base and cross cultural, cross gender. It has a wide, seems to have a wide international fan base and a wide um, female fan base as well. Because he is, he is quite spunky. Well, I'm not going to comment on that. You know? I don't have a thing for, um, you know, trench coat wearing. Just put Chris Hemsworth's face. <laughs> and I'll buy it. Yeah, there is, there is a bit of a man love thing going on here today. Um, okay, so... I bought it anyway. That's fine. Um, and this is the, um, the latest one that Dark Horse released this two weeks ago. Um, and yeah, it's a pretty simple one. It's set in 1985 when Hellboy is still part of the, um, the BPRD. Um, he's called into Nebraska to... BBRD would be? The Bureau of Paranormal Research and Development. Excellent. Yes, and for those who don't know, he is actually in the current miniseries. It's about to come out here. No longer a part of the BPRD. Just to confuse things, because Mike McGill likes to jump in and out of time. Um, this is one of those ones that he likes to go back and do. Just like, almost like an X-Files type deal. Just goes back and looks at, you know, particular cases or particular pieces of folklore. Um, yeah, so B uh, Hellboy's in Nebraska. There have been... Various cow mutilations and... Um, cow mutilations, a classic. Cow mutilations and um, starts off with a bunch of kids doing uh, performing a magic ritual to summon a demon or the devil himself, um, including Buster Oakley, which is where, you know, cleverly the story gets its title from. It's only they think they call one, big bright in the sky, they all go missing, in comes Hellboy to investigate. Which is what he does. Which is what he does. That's you know he's he's the world's greatest paranormal inve um, paranormal investigator, if you believe Mike Mignola. Um, he's the supernatural Mulder. <laughs> yeah, supernatural chain smoking. Um, <laughs> yeah, goes in, and investigates, sees some ghost cows, which he thinks is kind of strange. I often like I sky. often think that ghost cows would be quite uh, strange. Well, the ghost cows is actually, I think, one of the highlights of the story, though. <laughs> Who doesn't love the idea of ghost cows? Um, Do they, like, are they, like, mad dis mad cow disease type ghost cows? Or no, they... they're sort of a mad cow that turns up in the end, but, um, <laughs> as I say, also trying to... Sorry, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> okay, bright light in the sky, Hellboy oh disappears, discovers he's on a UFO. Um, okay, um, I really like Kevin Nolan as an artist. I think he does a great job here drawing, you know, various... Uh, first of all, Buster Oakley himself, quite distinctive, you know, sort of blonde hair, glasses. Is he a key sort of historical figure, Buster Oakley? No, just, uh, but I just think the, the character design for Buster Oakley himself in the two panels that you actually see him. Hmm. Um, quite Is well that because on. he looks quite like you? Possibly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's the resemblance, but you don't currently have your beard. No, this is true. Um, as I, but that's right, I saved your beard before um, uh, it'll be on the website. I think he does a pretty good job of, um, you know, setting up the suspense 
drawing the action. Draws a really good Hellboy in that um, Hellboy still looks like he is drawn by Mike Vignola, but at the mm. same time, I'm not sitting here going, oh my God, why isn't Mike Vignola drawing um, the character still? I actually prefer Mike Vignola's not drawing Hellboy. Mm. I th- I, Controversial. I good job. Um, my big uh, so, but he's actually done Hellboy before, hasn't he, Kevin Nolan? I mean, he's done... Possibly. Uh, yes, he did uh, for The Weird Tales. Weird Tales. He draws, yeah. draws drawing that. Um, I think this is an okay story. Um, my big problem is that one big fight's at the end and it takes too long. Mm-hmm. So it just feels like you've got all this set up at the start for just a fight scene. Right. Um, some, some very well drawn, a very well drawn fight scene, don't get me wrong, and some cool, very well designed creatures. But it's sort of like, it, it feels a bit sort of nothing in the end. Okay. If that makes, if that makes sense. That's yeah, yeah I agree with you. Um, I was I was underwhelmed for for a book that's usually highly steeped in you know mythology and folklore and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that really gives the Hellboy stories a lot more depth. Mm. Um, yeah, this one did seem a little shallow mm. and quite a bit of a deviation from not from the standard Hellboy, but certainly you know it introduces elements into Hellboy that haven't really previously been covered. But doesn't yeah, actually... more sci-fi elements. But doesn't story. actually, you know, really deal with them. It, it sort of goes into the more the more cliché jokes mm. about, you know, alien abductions that you sort of, that you hear and get. It, there's, yeah. no, there's nothing... No, actual Hellboy is given as a strong um, folklore influence and infusion and McNoll's steeped in this stuff. Um, and so I would have liked a bit more exploration about the UFO side of things and, you know, what that actually means for the Hellboy universe. Yeah, you know, we we generally see monsters come from other dimensions and things like that, and to get, you know, UFO for spaceships, cool, but use it. Yeah, is what I'm saying. No, I agree. Yeah, no, I just want to pick it because it's a done in one story. It, you can pretty much read it for you know the five minutes that it'll take you to read it. Cover price of three fifty. I think three fifty is probably a bit much. Yeah, I would say a, a maybe two fifty, but three fifty. Yeah, it's a that's a that's a pretty big asking price for really what is just a bunch of really nicely drawn pages um it yeah i'd say wait wait for the trade that it comes in you'll probably get a whole bunch of other stuff that's a lot more interesting excellent thank you very much luke good choice all right let's move on to richo what is your choice for today uh my choice is brightest day it's part of basically dc's biggest groundbreaking event story of the next five minutes and issue 23 in particular which is um the latest issue to come out yeah two weeks ago yeah. it is a, it is a weekly event isn't it brightest day uh bi-weekly bi-weekly, bi-weekly. It, cross, it crosses with um brightest day generation lost so yeah. you get brightest day one week generation lost the next yeah. okay and yeah brightest day is the sort of banner title that dc's been giving to uh to all of the books that are shaping the current face of the dc universe and this bi-weekly and a direct event, result of of Blackest Night. Yes. And uh, yes, this this series is effectively dealing with the ramifications of the end of Blackest Night. Um, for those of you who haven't read Blackest Night... Um, and why the hell not? Then um, several characters return from the dead uh, at the end of that story. But unlike the usual revolving door of death and rebirth that we get in comics... We're talking about Eugene Gray. This one was um, is actually meant to have uh, a bit more emphasis and impact. Like these... These resurrections are meant to be important to the DCU as a whole. Now, this this story is it's we're almost at the end of the series now, and so you know the big sort of ground-breaking events, you know, end of the world stuff has started to form. But what I found with the issue itself was that sense of that sense of menace and that sense that there is something big and earth-threatening happening here 
isn't really all that prevalent. You know, Bright, Brightest Day as a whole, I think, has has been a little bit disappointing mm. in that regard. And that sense that something important is happening here. They keep telling yeah. us that something important is happening. I think I'm going to put my Luke hat on here and uh, say that Brightest Day is boring crap. Mm. <laughs> I think it's some. Um, I think uh, as a series, it's Generation Lost is the far better series because there's an actual story, lo- story plot thread. I think Brightest Day suffers from far too many characters. Yeah, th- there's no real sort there's of linking through thread to sort of... Um, hold your attention from issue to issue. Um, the What's really important, I think, and really interesting with this issue, though, is, um, and this is a big spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't actually seen this yet, we get in Brightest Day the return of Swamp Thing to the DC Universe. Um, a little bit of backstory here. For about the past 15 years, 15 to 20 years, there's been a real distinction between the DC Universe and DC's Vertigo imprint, which is their more adult-oriented sort of book market type of, you know, deeper philosophical comic books. Um, And Swamp Thing was one of the flagship characters of Vertigo. And so there's been a bit of a moratorium on having characters like Swamp Thing and the other Vertigo characters appear in in the DCU. But this issue seems to be heralding a, a change in that policy DC um, and this is part of the uh, DC's recently gone through a restructuring a corporate restructuring and it seems that all of a sudden with this issue we're seeing that the doors are now open for the return of those you know previously vertigo only characters into the DCU didn't um, we but didn't we also have uh, death appear in Action comics. Absolutely right. Another another good sign that something's happening. But that that was a little bit different though, because that was Paul Cornell as the writer of Action Comics, actually going to Neil Gaiman, the creator of Death, and specifically asking for his permission to use her, and getting permission from DC then to do it as well. What we see in Brightest Day, however, is just a Vertigo character being thrust into the spotlight in an absolutely key role in the series. In fact, really, the the role that the entire series has been building up to has been given to Swamp Thing. So, um, yeah, and this is an interesting shift for DC. Um, and for me, that was what was actually really interesting about this issue, not the actual story itself, but the potential implication that this might have on the DC universe. Because, as I said, now the door is open. Can we be seeing... Characters like, you know, Shade the Changing Man um, returning to the DCU as well. Um, Let's hope not. <laughs> so, yeah, so the What's issue wrong is... with Shade the Changing Man? What's right with Shade the Changing Man? Well, Shade was actually one of my favourite comics of the, <laughs> of the 90s. So, um, I mean, obviously, you know, we've also seen in recent times um, in Doom Patrol, we've seen the return of some of the characters from Grant Morrison's... Um, uh, sort of proto vertigo run mm-hmm. on the book we've seen them returning and um yeah and it's just it's interesting to see that this policy change has occurred and that it's now affecting dc titles in a major way that doesn't in any way say this issue you know as a reading of itself um it still leaves a bit to be desired um as you say the storyline has been a little dull and kind of 
I believe I said boring crap. Yes, we did. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing here. (laughs) All right, I see. Um, Yeah, the story. You're the moderator. We're editorial. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so um, yeah, it doesn't really save the story itself or Mm. you know brightest day as a whole Mm. from being something other than boring crap. Um, (laughs) But it is. But it was an interesting little sort of turn of events. It was. I know you're a big Vertigo fan. Mm. I am a big Vertigo fan and a big Swamp Thing fan. Yeah. So it's nice to see that he'll be actually back and interacting with the DC Universe. And looking awesome. It's got some, uh, I will say this for Brightest Day, it may be boring, but this artwork is excellent. I was yes. just thinking that this, the whole time while you were talking, I was looking at the cover art, and it's well, cov- brilliantly drawn. Seriously, that's actually been quite, has been quite good, particularly Ivan Rice. I think going, he's gone from strength to strength since um, uh, his Green Lantern days through to Blackest Night through to this. He's drawn, he's had, he's had the opportunity to draw not yeah. just, you know, generic superhero stuff, but... Some interesting characters, characters you don't really get to see. I'm a um, big fan of Blackest Night. Very, very big fan. Yeah, Blackest Night was called? Cool. Big, big zombie fan. So zombie superheroes. Um, I think I think the series, Bryce said the series in general, and this is in particular, have some interesting elements. And I like the return of some of the characters. Um, I just don't think, I think there are far too many characters um, for the story that they're trying to tell. Um, in this issue in particular, I just think it's sort of some really nice artwork and a great revelation, but not much. And Agreed. The returns, and and the, the return, my biggest problem with returns, as you say, too many mm. people have returned to the dead. And I'm still not sold on the need for those characters to come back either. Yeah, what was it? What was it? Boom, boomerang? Captain, Captain Boomerang. Captain Boomerang? Uh, as in the original Digger Harkness. Yeah, he's yeah. come back. Uh, it, seems like, it seems like some of the characters have just chosen because the writers were like, well, I'd like to use that character at some point. So Why does he come back and Robin's dad doesn't? What's up with that? Yeah, there's some, uh, it's, it's interesting because. The, the characters that are presented on the cover here, the elemental characters, yeah, I can see why their return is important because they're now forming these element, you Captain know, Planet. elemental um, uh, forms. But some of the other characters' returns just haven't really... There doesn't seem to be purpose to it beyond we just want to use these characters in the story. Yeah. And given how important they were presented as being when they returned at the end of Blackest Night, mm. it's just it, it just seems a bit weak that... They're not all being utilised. Sums it up in a nutshell. Weak. The more important question, though, is have we convinced Crystal? It's not <laughs> exactly a non-comic read. You have read a couple of comics, haven't you? Yeah, I've read a couple of comics, yes. What um, were those comics? Uh, v and uh, the Victorian Gentleman. Excellent choices. You chose them. I did choose them. Those are excellent choices. So it wasn't so much choice as, here, read this. The rest oh. of the it, was, it was more a cost. It was more a uh, sort of like... Uh, look at these awesome absolute editions. They look really pretty. Sweetie, you should read these. Well, actually, uh, obviously, probably a good couple of comics uh, as an introduction to non-comic readers. Yeah. So I'll give two looks That's to right. Waldo's choice. <laughs> well, as a as a as a uh, book reader, I thought yeah. that's why I thought Lee would be well, good one. Well, obviously, I read comics as a child. We had a huge box of comics, which I don't know what happened to. Um, but I find... What was in those? Oh, heaps of stuff. Superman, Archie. Oh my god! Yet another, I read comics as a child and now I don't know where those comics are and they could be worth a fortune. And have you noticed that pretty much every box of <laughs> comics that exists from somebody as a kid usually features Superman, Archie <laughs> and Casper. <laughs> Maybe some Donald Duck thrown and some, in And, and being well. Australia, some oh, Phantom. Yeah, there was some Donald yeah. Duck and some Little Lulu in there. <laughs> Peanuts and, yeah. Wow. But, uh, I find reading comics because I stopped reading as a child obviously and went into books without pictures 
the pictures actually take me outside of the story. So what you need to find there is a comic because the pictures are so seamless with the story, it keeps me inside the story. This will be our mission, people. This is this will be. We will actually. We need to get Crystal involved mm-hmm. a bit more, not just token girl. Yeah. And well, you're uh, starting to learn what kind of stories I like. And it is you. Uh, I'm not. To- I'm not against comics, but I need something of story that's going to be interesting. We also need some help from our listeners. So if anybody can suggest uh, a comic or comic series that uh, Crystal should get on board with, I mean, she's already read V and League. Yeah. Bear in um, mind, it's going to be comics something that I. <laughs> Archie. So she's already read the classics. Yeah. So. We, we, we know she loves Isaac Asimov. I don't yes. know if that helps yeah, in any so way. It's, it's got to be something I would enjoy reading, not that you think I should read. Panels yeah, that are both. easy to follow. There's mm. some. I read a graphic novel of an Agatha Christie book. Jimmy wanted to try it out because we had them at work. And the panels weren't in a logical order. You had to sort of read down the page and then across the page and then the next page was different again. So mm. I find that annoying. All right, so listeners, if you could uh, suggest anything that for the lovely Crystal to read, and we'll, of course, suggest some stuff as well. And, and, yes, help uh, make Crystal a comic nerd. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so in regards to uh, criticism of comics or, or, or judging the story or whatnot, I, I'd be the Luke of the comic world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, harsh. harsh. The world's harshest <laughs> comic critic. <laughs> okay, so that's from the rack. So next up, War Room, the entire section where uh, the, the group will discuss topics dear to our heart and related to nerd culture anything from the collected works of alan moore to to aliens exist and have they visited our planet <laughs> got that in the foundation ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, isaac so our topic for today is comic book movies a nice easy one we all watch movies we all like comic books well except for token girl and uh, I didn't like them. I just don't read them. <laughs> but you have seen some comic book movies, so you can contribute. I've seen many comic book movies. Excellent. My favourite is Superman. So comic book movies, uh, they would they I'd say they started off in uh, around the serials, movie serials, when you had uh, serials such as uh, Batman and the Adventures of Captain Marvel and the Phantom, and of course Captain America and Superman uh, in the nineteen forties. Which started off as and a then film. it did. Start off as um, Superman: The Adventures of the Mole Man. Yes, interestingly enough, for the um for the TV series, and that was a bit of a hit, like not spectacular successful, but enough of it made enough money for them to go, yeah, a TV show be viable. They did, and actually turned the Mole Man story into a two-parter on the TV show. They did indeed. Thank you very much, Lou. Very well done. Um, of course, there was other. There was there were the American ones. There were some international ones as well, which is uh, Danger Diabolique. Which uh, I'm personally a fan of. I actually quite like Diabolik. Never seen Diabolik. It's I highly recommend it. Uh, and it's also some uh, some French stuff. And the god awful wild, wild world of Batwoman, which had uh, some major copyright issues and was eventually retitled as I do believe the hippie vampire. <laughs> it was indeed. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't mentioned the, um, the speaking of the international one. You haven't mentioned the um, the cult, the infamous one, Barbarella. Barbarella started off life as a comic book. It did indeed. And a French. Mm. Yes. Gotta love those French. Sex everywhere you look. <laughs> the Japanese, Sex is the base. The Japanese also gave us movies like Inframan. They did? Uh, in the 1960s. Um, and really, once you get past the first couple of films, even the Godzilla movies really sort of became superhero movies with Godzilla having to defend Earth from whatever other giant monster was invading that week. 
Um, so yeah, so even that really, the, the Japanese gave us a few different sort of superhero mm. movies at that point. And we are eternally grateful. Absolutely. And, but of course, um, the major uh, thrust into superhero movies occurred in 1978 with the brilliance that is Superman the movie. Absolutely. If we all uh, obviously know my impressions, uh, Superman the movie, people, um, your opinions. Okay, Christopher Reeve is Superman to about every single generation that has come after Superman the movie. I mean, we've had Dean Cain and Tom Welling on the small screen, but really, Christopher Reeve is Christopher a seminal Reeve, Superman. Christopher Reeve is Superman. And I'll brook no argument. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I'm with you 100%. Although Brandon, Brandon Ruth actually did quite a good job as well. well he kind of looks like Christopher Reeve. And that's just it. Brandon, Brandon Ruth was trying to be Christopher Reeve yeah. being Superman. Yeah. And yeah, look, he did an okay job. He did do an okay job. I'm not going to criticise his acting, his performance with his acting. He did do an okay job. But it was just reflective of the fact that we don't have Christopher Reeve playing yeah. Superman. Yeah, cool. essentially. Even essentially, if he was Brandon still with Ruth. us, he couldn't have done it. We are, of course, referring to Superman Returns, people. Yeah. Yeah, Brandon Ruth did a good job of like actually playing Superman. Mm. Christopher Reeve is Just Superman. That's yes. the, the, the distinction. The distinction that, yeah. uh, Christopher Reeve completely defines the depiction, not even just in the movies, but really the comics started to to draw Superman to look like Christopher Reeve exactly. in the 80s. And yeah. So re really the impact that he had was just phenomenal. Unfortunately, he typecast the poor man. Yeah, it did um, it. When I was little... My two favourite movies were Star Wars and Superman. And that's why and I love you. Constantly got constantly got the uh, music themes mixed up in my head. That's a fair call. Yeah, that is a fair call. I actually uh, maybe controversially prefer the Superman theme, but yeah, there you go. So, of course, uh, after Superman was a, a massive commercial hit and uh, we eventually went on to its inevitable sequel, we won't dwell too much on the, the controversy of Richard Donner leaving the project and taken over by... Richard Lester, but yep, Superman 2, also awesome. Yeah, and recently... Uh, yeah, well, Superman 2 has Zod. That's right. Zod is just brilliant. And Sam's performance is amazing. And, you know, that end fight in Metropolis. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so then, of course, we move on to Tim Burton's Batman. Pivotal moment yep. in comic book movies. And I'd actually argue that... Sorry? Michael Keaton? Yeah. The Michael Keaton one, yep. I'd actually argue that's where you get that first, the real influx of comic book movies uh -huh. from... Um, totally because, agree, yeah. Because Superman got introduced, and yeah, it was great, and everyone loved it, and it was a massive hit, but then it spawned a really good sequel, mm. then two not very good sequels, and there wasn't a, the whole bunch of... Not very good, movies. is that all you're going to say? Come that's, on, harshest critic in the world. All right. He Superman. repairs the Great Wall of China with his vision. Okay. I think that speaks for itself. It's pretty bad. All right, so yeah, that pretty much sums really, it up. The, the impact Superman gave us on the wider superhero mm. um, community actually came from really from Marvel mm. and their attempts, the Spider-Man TV show, uh, the, Hulk. the Hulk TV show, and a couple of massive misfires like the Doctor Strange movie. Oh, I totally agree, yeah. I mean, in between Superman and Batman, we had things like Supergirl, also a travesty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. I, mean I, I fell in love with Supergirl personally. I, was, I had a massive crush on her. The problem with Supergirl was that I just kept going there, I want Superman to show up. Oh, I, I, didn't know, I didn't have that problem. My mind was more just, well, why is she fighting a witch? Mm. Yeah. What's what's this? What the? Why is she not finding Gorilla Grodd or something? I, I but, then, but then the Supergirl comics of the time were actually a bit like that <laughs> as well. Well, that is true. So that is true. They are kind of reflective, I suppose. Uh, Toxic Avenger. Yeah, the less said about that, the better. The Punisher, as in the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. The less said about that, the better. <laughs> um, I suppose you could also include, um, even though probably more uh, 
Star Wars inspired the Flash Gordon, obviously being a comic strip character. Very true. Was released in 1980 as well. And, went and he's much, awesome. And went very much with the campy, uh, <laughs> almost the 60s Batman approach. It's actually interesting. Can't, I can't stand the 60s Batman, but I love Flash Gordon. You like your camp, but only when it's in space opera. That's it, space opera camp, and when it's got a clean soundtrack. Exactly. <laughs> and Timothy Dalton. Yeah. If Timothy Dalton had been in the Batman TV show, it would have been all right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so after Batman, of course, we then got uh, the stuff from the 90s. So, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. See, I, I grew up. Heroes in a half shower. See, I grew up. Total power. I have fond memories of that. It's probably, it's probably a terrible movie if I watch it again, but I have fond memories of that because I was. It's actually age. no. Surprisingly enough, it's not. It's actually not bad. I haven't actually seen the movie. I've only seen the cartoon show. Well, see, I grew up with. You know, I grew up with the cartoon show, so I have fond memories of that film, and you know, went and saw all three Turtles films. Hey, did, did you enjoy listening to? Uh... Vanilla Isis. Um, <laughs> go Ninja, powers. go Ninja, go. Um, but I think the Turtles, the Turtles film for, for its time, it was, remember, it was being highly entertained. There's a lot of action in it. The, you know, the characters were reflective of the characters on the TV show. I thought the production for its time was pretty good. I, yeah. so I, have, I, I As I said, if I watch it today, I might have a different opinion, but I remember enjoying it at the time. There was an attempt at the time to have all um, superhero movies adopt the the Tim Burton style of filmmaking that he used on Batman. So with movies like The Shadow, Mm -hmm. I mean, The Shadow was more of a Batman movie than a Shadow movie. It was, Um, And um, obviously the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, a bit of that crept into that as well. Mm. Um, So yeah, so there was a real, unfortunately it led to almost a, I guess, a sameness to a lot of these films. Yeah. Um, And even even the non-comic related ones like Darkman, Mm. Still had that that kind of well, Tim Burton approach. Darkman yeah. was trying to be the Shadow. Yeah, very yeah. much so. And in fact, it's probably a better version actually, of the Shadow. Yeah. Than the shadow yeah. is. It's actually pretty cool, Darkman. Darkman. I'm a fan. fan. Um, and of course, we're forgetting. It is Sam, Sam Raimi, yeah? Yeah. 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 And Darlene Neeson. And of course, we're forgetting possibly the greatest superhero movie of the time Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's say about that. Uh, actually, when you said the, the greatest superhero movie of that particular time, I thought you were going to mention The Rocketeer, Dave. Ah, uh, The Rocketeer is actually... The Rocketeer, I enjoyed... 1991. Yeah. The, the thing I love about The Rocketeer is that it perfectly captures the comic book, uh-huh. um, the feel, the sort of high adventure feel of the comic book, um, and in no way is trying to mimic... Batman. And yeah, Batman. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like the complete antithesis. And, but, it's but a what, high adventure film, and it's bright and colourful. But what's the real reason why you love that film? Jennifer Connelly. This <laughs> is another one like Turtles. I, you know, I was nine when we went and saw that, and I thought, Dude. man, this is cool. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So fun is that growing up, you know, big, colourful, you know, almost a serial matinee adventure. Well, that's basically what it is. Well, yeah. that, well, I didn't have you know the the pulp sensibilities that I do now. Yeah. Yeah. With all this sort of stuff. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, fond memories of that. As I say, could be really, And Jennifer Connelly. Really, really, that and um, <laughs> The Phantom, which was released a few years later. I couldn't stand the Phantom movie. Is that Billy Zane? So, yeah. yeah. I thoroughly he enjoyed did good. it. He did a good job. I thoroughly enjoyed it for, for the similar sort of reasons that I enjoyed The Rocketeer. Is that yeah. at a point where everybody was trying to be Batman, these two movies came along that really tried to capture the, the sort of high adventure of the 30s. Um, as opposed to, you know, the dark sort of gothic noir of, of Batman, these movies really actually stood out. Yeah. Mm. Talking about gothic noir, the crow. The crow... Independent comic makes good. You know, the I'm film. probably going to cop flack for this, Yeah. but the crow movie tells a better story than the crow comic. 
don't, don't get me wrong, the Crow comic is a fantastic read and the artwork is beautiful and the poetry pages, painted poetry pages, really stand out. But there's more story in the film and the flow through of the story, I think, is actually a little bit better. There's more of a sort of grand picture to the film, whereas the comic is just basically, I'm going to go and kill each one of these guys in turn. So, so we also had some, I mean, we also had the Bat sequels, of course. I mean, the Shoemaker destroyed the Bat franchise. Yep. Um, Absolutely. So some more, some light stuff. But yeah, it, there definitely was a trend. So with the Crow, uh, which then led in Spawn, which is just atrocious. atrocious. Judge well, Dredd. Yep, Judge Dredd, which, which is was, oh, it's an abomination. Robocop, which came out eight years before the Dredd film, is a better version of Dredd than yeah, the Dredd absolutely. film. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah. so these movies really, they really, by not understanding hmm. their characters and their subject matters and not treating with those those characters with the right level of respect, yeah. really and killed. And not treating the audience with the same level. Mm, exactly right, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was cool with Stallone being Dredd. As long as you don't take his mask off. Yeah. I mean, he had the chin. Well, I mean, it could have really done with a better story, more reflective of what's in the comics oh, yeah. as well. It really killed any momentum yeah. that comic book movies had coming out of the phenomenal success that Batman was. That's right. Um, and the inclusion of Snyder. Yeah, so really... It shouldn't be the, in any film. By the sort of... By the, the mid to late 90s, really, the bubble was bursting. Mm. Yeah. So moving into the, uh, the 2000s, a huge superhero slash comic book era. Mm. It's, uh, this is when they started just bringing in the dollars. Mm. And uh, Hollywood just went mad. Just bought every comic book franchise known to man, even if it was suitable for comics or not, for film or not. It's just insane. So, of course, uh, kicking it all off was Brian Sinner's X-Men. Yep. Opinions? I saw it in London when it first appeared. Oh, Luke, the well-travelled member of the cast. I was in there going, oh my God, it's coming out. And it was one of those things I was looking forward to. And I thought, cool, it's got an Australian in the cast. Australia's um, own Hugh Jackman. Yep, um, as Wolverine, and I thought he does a great. I thought his performance was a standout. I just remember feeling a little bit underwhelmed by the story. Not enough dancing, Hugh. <laughs> um, no, Hugh, the right amount of dancing. Hugh. He was he was good. Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen are good um, as Charles. Xavier, yeah, but they're always good as Charles Xavier and Magneto, respectively. But overall, you know, an okay story that I thought could have been didn't could have been done better. I wasn't blown away. Yeah, I was actually quite stunned when I first saw the film because um, to be honest with you I went in expecting something I, I went in expecting the movie to be awful I, I you know a lot of characters um, a lot of required special effects and things I actually thought e- even though Brian Singer had obviously a very good track record to that point as a director I really didn't go in with a very high expectation of the film at all um, especially since by that point we'd really been you know, the, the, the comic movies of the late 90s had really sort of soured me a bit to the idea of comic movies. Yeah, there was some crap in that decade. There yeah, was. and so um, so I was actually very pleasantly Tank surprised. Tank Girl, looking at you. <laughs> Tank Girl was a... Well, moving yeah, on. They, they invested it's a, in... It's a crap comic as well. I'll say it. I'll be the first to say it. It's crap. <laughs> well, the great thing with X-Men was they invested in trying to develop characters... Um, and relationships, um, and especially the relationship between uh, Xavier and Magneto. I think it's just from the conversation, there's actually a period there, partly due to Batman and Robin, um, where comic books were seen as anathema. And and, re- and really, X-Men, X-Men, X-Men did completely change changed that. I mean, it was a huge hit. It made substantially more than its $70 million budget, mm-hmm. and it gave legitimacy to the idea that 
superhero films could work and even large cast superhero team movies could work well after x-men we also we then uh, two years later had uh, a movie that's dear to my heart san raimi's spider-man huge success and uh, just great stuff but uh, that may be my rose-colored glasses speaking there i've seen it once again i've seen it recently and uh, a brilliant example of how to do an origin story without being boring yeah, until without, until the Green Goblin comes. Without bogging out. down in terms of you know you actually yeah. believe it. It's, it's not it doesn't it doesn't stick to the story to the comic origin. But you, could you know, exactly, but it's enough to. You shouldn't have to. To be respectful, yeah, you shouldn't have to. Yeah, I totally agree with you. But as long as you don't change. You could come and fresh to Spider Man, not knowing Spider Man was. That's right. But with your point about making it believable, I, I kept at the start. I was like he's been bitten by a spider a mutant spider at that why doesn't he all get it checked out <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't you oh, crystal oh, practical crystal crystal, crystal. You're, you're going with the whole logical sense you know <laughs> by that logic why doesn't the Hulk when he gets irradiated with gamma rays you know get secluded away <laughs> well, for billions of years yeah, more importantly why doesn't uh, Bruce Banner when he gets bombarded by radiation just die <laughs> <laughs> but overlooking that point I found the first half of the movie was quite good I got lost in the well, middle of it and yeah, found it boring yeah. after that yeah fair well, enough. once again at the, at the start there they invest time in developing peter parker yeah. as a character establishing his relationships with his aunt and uncle mm. um and with obviously with mary jane um mm. so that yeah they, they, they continued that trend of of actually investing in in story and in character to go story with story and character mm. is a building blocks of a good movie yeah exactly right mm. but the, just want to point that the thing that if no one believed that comic books weren't a viable property after X-Men, after Spider-Man. Oh, they knew. It was, it was yeah, just... Yeah, the, the floodgates opened. X-Men, the what floodgates X-Men started, opened. Spider-Man finished. Yep, yeah, totally right. So then moving on, of course, we had uh, just a slew of just rubbish after that, um, in my opinion. I don't know, Daredevil, mm, yeah. Le- The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yep. Oh. Electra. Electra. The first Hulk, actually, is a controversial one. I'm actually not a fan, but... No, neither am I. <laughs> we also then have Hellboy. So the yep. film adaptation, and uh, yeah, I don't mind. It's all right. Always very entertaining, and does a, I think a good job of capturing the feel of the comics. Yeah, and and, and of, uh, know, Ron Perlman, of course. The two-fisted adventure. Yeah, and yeah, Ron, Ron Perlman's a great casting choice as Hellboy. Mm. Yeah, um, and of course, then we've got uh, a re-attempt at the Punisher with Thomas Jane, mm-hmm. two thousand and four. Um, not really a fan of the Punisher per se, but. I actually don't see the point of I've not seeing the film, I don't, and I don't see the point of going to see effectively Death Wish or a Dirty Harry film just with a guy in tights. <laughs> but he yeah. doesn't wear tights in the film, though. Like he has a okay, T-shirt Death of a skull. Dirty Harry with a with a skull with a skull black shirt. But we also had uh, Fantastic Four. Yeah. The sequel to Hellboy, the Golden Army. I actually thought the sequel was quite good. was actually better than the I agree. No, I disagree. I think the first one's better. It's got a clearer through line. It's not so quite so amazed at its own visual um, flourishes. That but Hellboy is visual flourishes. Even mm. as a comic, Hellboy is visual yeah. flourishes. Yeah. It's really the beauty of... And what about Luke Goss's Fairy Prince character? Yes, given that he's... He's awesome. Give me Rasputin any day. Oh, nah. Yeah, you've got to say, to go from Bross to a, a great <laughs> performance in Hellboy 2 is a fair effort. He's Luke awesome. Is he Blade 2 as well? He's just Luke Goss. He's the man. Himself. He's the man. I'll watch anything he's in. I don't care. Death Race 2, I'll watch it. He has the same birthday as me. Well, so does his brother. <laughs> 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 uh, 
And, uh, of course, the Iron Man films. One well, and two. I think the Iron Man films actually gave a bit of a shot in the arm mm. to superhero movies in that there was a period where it was kind of... I mean, the, the success was still there, but not the phenomenal success of things like Spider-Man. And, yeah. you know, and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the franchise movies were kind of tying up their... Their X-Men. trilogies and things like that, like X Men and Spider Man. So and they and they ended them on you know not very good notes. You know, whilst I'm not a fan of Spider Man two, a lot of people do enjoy it. And a lot of people enjoy. Are you, it you're not as fan of Spider Man two. No, you're not on this podcast anymore. Uh, Leave. <laughs> <laughs> Spider Man three, I can understand. Spider Man three, I'll shake I'm your hand. I'm not a fan of Spider Man two. Oh um, my god, man. Okay, um, it's better than but, one. But Dissension in the lane. Can you let me finish? Than one. Can you let me finish for a second? No. <laughs> a, a lot of people do actually like it, and a lot of people like it because they believe it's a genuinely good film. So you know, I'm not being picky. I'm not picking on the film here, people. Um, it's, just, it's just the. the I'm just uh, stunned. I'm too stunned to react. It's just the diplomatic way in which you describe that. Effectively, what you're saying is, I think it's crap, but there are idiots out there that like it. <laughs> yes, that's not what I'm saying here, though. You know, Spider-Man 2, there was still a bit of a, a high. It raked in millions of dollars. It got a lot of critical reviews, a lot of big commercial success. Spider-Man 3, you know, made buckets of money, but everyone hated it, it seemed. And the same thing yeah, with X-Men The critical success wasn't there. Same with X-Men X-Men 3. 3. It seemed like, you know, they're both their third films. Given that the first two films of both franchises were very well received, X Spider-Man 3 and X-Men 3 ended both their franchises on a bit of a downer. Totally agree. Spider-Man 3 is a disgrace. Yeah. And X-Men 3, let's, the less said about that, the better. That and and the, the other thing in all of that as well was that um, Superman Returns wasn't the... Yes, I do want to move into Superman Returns. That, um, that I think uh, Warner Brothers were hoping for. An interesting choice, I think, a sequel to the first two films, mm. which then ignores the th- three oh. and four. <laughs> Superman Returns, I'm actually a fan. I actually don't think it's all that bad, to be honest I, with you. I, I think Brandon Ruth, yeah, Ruth does an excellent a, job. It wasn't the huge success that I think Warner Brothers were hoping for. Yeah, so. I mean, it did need some more action, that's true. Yeah. I mean, no, uh, that's. Superman on the big screen, I want to get straight into Superman. You know, saving the world. Yeah, and that's what I don't feel I got in this one. I didn't get Superman saving the world. You know, there was a bit of a, a plot with Le- a plot saving with the Lex world's Luthor. a bit different to having action packed, but it doesn't have to be action. Yeah, but I mean, saving, saving the world world. against giant robots or something. Yeah, I mean, there should have been actually something where you get to see you see, yeah. see the majesty of the characters. Like, why yeah. do people like Superman, a character who's been around yeah. for well on eighty years now? Totally right. Why do yeah? Why do people? It, like it should, it should you be, want to see the heroism. You want to see. Yeah. It should be against intergalactic threats, not Lex Luthor again. Speeding bullet. Yeah. Is able to fleet tall buildings in a single bound. Yeah. Well, so the, it's, the it's... important thing is that Sucker Punch's own Zack Snyder <laughs> is going to give us a uh, new version of Superman very soon. That in which I'm sure will be exact opposite. And I'll say the exact opposite. Okay, so we've talked about we've talked about some uh, some crap. Uh, we've talked about some uh, some decent stuff. Particular a film that I want to talk about from uh, this period that I think has it's basically kicked this movie Superman superhero movie industry in the face, and that is of course the Batman Begins. I should point out here that this is you know, series like, like you was like you all with Spider Man. Batman's a character dear to me, so I have yeah. So I'm you so are the Batman fan. I'm the Batman, I'm the Batman freak here. Um, so there's a little bit of um, subjectivity. Here, because I actually have very strong feelings of the character. Yeah. So just be careful. Anyone who says anything, just be careful. Well, you saw my reaction for Spider Man too. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the greatest superhero films ever made. And I disagree with that completely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually think Batman Begins and uh, Dark Knight are absolute pieces of rubbish. 
No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if that was the case. I mean, they are they are brilliant and uh, interested in hearing your opinion. The great thing about Batman Begins is that it it's the first film to really concentrate on Batman as a character. But the first Batman with Michael Keaton, Tim Burton's first Batman, it tried to. You know, there were moments where it was about you know the psychology of Bruce Wayne and who he was and things like that. But it got sidetracked by Jack's performance as the Joker and yep. the Joker himself. Um, whereas Batman Begins was really you know. Who is this guy, and why? Why does he do what decides to do what he wants to do? And I thought Christian Bale does a fantastic job as both Bruce and Batman. He is the he is the the Batman and the Bruce Wayne from the comics. The whole Bruce Wayne is a mask, Batman is the reality. There's there's another truth to it as well. Yeah. He's playing a role of disability, but he's also this grim, dark Avenger. Yeah. And I thought he did a fantastic job. I like really like the start where with the training sequence in um, Tibet. And I liked Liam Neeson a lot as Henry Ducard, and who is then later uh, revealed to be Raz Al Ghul. Yeah. Um, perfect casting choice. Would have wanted to see a bit more detective work. Yeah, that's um, one of my major criticisms. Because this whole thing. World's greatest about, detective. Yeah, world's greatest detective. Let's and see needs, Batman. And he needs that. a menthol. What? He needs like. There's <laughs> some throat. More so in Dark Knight. Throat lozenges. More so in Dark Knight. Um, <laughs> and just a little bit of going over the top too much with the end. Before we go on to Dark Knight, can we get uh, Crystal's opinion on Batman Begins? You've seen it. I've not seen Batman Begins, and I have little interest in seeing it. Have you, but you've seen, have you seen Dark Knight? I have seen Dark Knight because you made me watch it. Oh. <laughs> um, I apologise. And, and I think it would be a much better, tighter film if they chucked a good 45 minutes out. Mm. I actually think Dark Knight is better than Batman Begins. And, I disagree. And, uh, well, Dark Knight, Dark Knight is completely dominated by one absolutely amazing performance yes absolutely brilliant um, Australia's own Australia's own Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger. Um, in, in a cast of fantastic actors mm. Heath Ledger's performance is just stuns you right from yeah. the outset it's there's unbelievable just something horrifying yeah. about his joke it does it does become from the the parody sort of comedy joker character and of the past he becomes a really just a psychotic murderous killer absolutely which is what he is in the comics he's, 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 yeah. he's genuinely terrifying in this film the problem is is that he overwhelms everything so much that really batman who should yeah is the central character yeah. of the film mm. batman kind of becomes lost in the shuffle um so yeah so we did i mean we just skipped over i mean that's by no means a comprehensive list i mean there's a whole heap of stuff uh of course watchmen which uh Iron Man, which we didn't sort of cover in any great detail. Yeah, but you know, Iron Man, it's, it was good. Let's go see it. Um, the Incredibles, uh, a whole bunch of terrible teen superhero movies like Sky High and Zoom, Zoom, and oh my god! It's so, <laughs> I mean, there's plenty out there. Kick ass. Wanted X Men Origins Wolverine, um, which is okay. terrible. And uh, for Richard, we've got uh, Japan's Ultraman. Ultraman. So then the the future of superhero movies. So we just saw Thor, which is, of course, part of Marvel Studios' extension for the, the, the Avengers franchise. And let's face facts. Marvel have really dominated this decade of of comic book movies. I'm exciting times. Exciting times of comic movies. So we've got... Um, so, but that, I mean, that being said, uh, it's not, we can't discount DC. I mean, DC's popping out Green Lantern. Well, there's even talk of a Justice League. Yeah, Justice League film. Uh, which there's is... been talk about that for about yeah. 
five years now. And it, it, it was weird. almost ready to go, but it was cast. Yeah. All right, so we'll finish up with uh, X Men First Class opinions. Not excited by it. I really don't care. Yeah, same. Um, look, it could be interesting, but really, what's it going to tell me that I can already get from the X Men movies? True. Mm. And as a non non X Men fan, it doesn't have Patrick Stewart in it, so I buy it. Fair enough. Well, that's pretty much it. We should just stamp that with every movie. It doesn't have Patrick Stewart in it. Why bother? But it's too late. (laughs) (laughs) So, just to finish up on just a bit of fanboyish type stuff top three superhero slash comic book movies. And fanboy girlish. I apologize. So, top three superhero slash comic book movies? Yep, hit me. Superman, Sin City, Batman. Excellent. No, we mentioned Sin City. <laughs> oh, and Sin City, also a comic book movie. <laughs> Superman, Batman, and Spider Man 2. Yay! <laughs> I disagree. Your choice is. No. <laughs> Krista? I can't come up with three. That's alright, just whatever you think of. Superman and Thor. Superman and Thor. Nice. Very nice. Uh, I'll go with Superman uh, 1 and 2. <laughs> and Spider-Man 2. Oh, okay. Superman 1 and 2 the same movie. All right. Jeez. All right, yeah, it's like saying it. Star Wars 1, Star Wars 2, Star Wars 3. Oh, sorry, yeah, look, that's, that's and... true. I mean, when, when you talk right, Superman, okay. you talk okay, Superman... Superman has two movies. All right, okay. I, I, I was, I'm sorry. I wasn't doing enough to understand that. Uh, Superman, Spider-Man 2, and Dark Knight. Okay, so normally at this point we would then do a letters page, which would be feedback, but since it's our, our zero issue... Uh, we don't have any so yeah thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed the show uh, keep an eye out for the nerdculturepodcast.com check it out uh, reviews stories news items it's even it's got so world, it's even got World of Warcraft talent stuff on there it's pretty amazing it's got everything I would like to thank Luke yo Richo thank you and lovely Crystal sure would for joining us today thank you very much see you next month <laughs>